As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Peace and blessings. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. Joining me is my guest and brother and comrade, Two Black. Welcome back to The Malcolm Effect. I love saying welcome back to people. <laughs> What's good, man? Thanks for having me. Nah, it's absolute, absolute honor and privilege, man. In the, I can't lie to you, Black. I should have said this off air, actually, but your name comes up in a lot of conversations on how brilliant of a theoretician you are. <laughs> in many of my circles, so I'm glad and honored to have uh, you here. No one tells me that, but that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, that's what's being said anyway. Okay. But honestly, so well, I guess we're talking, thinking through, and just kind of like debating, I guess, this brilliant piece produced, written by Two Black, in which he's, he's titled it Laundering Black Rage. And it's almost looking at a materialist analysis in looking at black rage vis-a-vis the reproduction of the state. And I guess, well, not I guess, looking at a racialized capitalist world or a racialized capitalist order, it becomes necessary to look at the function and role of race in the reproduction of capital and the reproduction of the state. That's my summary and how I've understood it. Have I understood the article? Yeah, I mean, that. that's... Essentially, yeah, that's the best description I've heard set back to me. Again, I don't get the feedback you were telling me about as far as the theoretician <laughs> thing, but <laughs> but but in all seriousness, no, like that. Yeah, I I wanted to give Black Rage some, a more of a material base because I think I've read poets and I've heard some scholars, but mainly people in the more like creative. Uh, fiction or nonfiction world discuss black rage and i think that some of those analyses have been good that's why you know i I quoted lauren hill at the very opening of the Mm -hmm. essay i think june jordan's done good work on it i think um amiri baraka has done some good work on it but i think that there's like a material base not just like this sense of a feeling but i think there's something more in how it manifests that goes beyond just like a certain indignity that we carry. I think that's part of it, but I think you can actually see it show up in the material world, as I argue, as a, as a form of labor. <clears throat> and you can see how mm-hmm. the state has has set up, as I say, the fronts to kind of um, co-opt it. But I'm I, honestly, an, a kind of a side note, I've been, I've been debating the whole time I was writing it, whether co-optation was even the right word to describe mm. any of this. Because part of it feels as if it's such a natural process that co-optation doesn't go far enough, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess on the logic of capital, it's always going to encapsulate these kind of things. What I found particularly interesting in reading this article, you're speaking to the condition of humanity in many ways. Wherever you find oppression, you're going to find those who are against oppression, those who are Period. fighting against so black rage will will always become a nest i mean given the racialized capitalist order and the world in which we live in today 
you're always going to find those antagonistic those, those antagonisms and it's almost like that dialectical relationship mm-hmm. and what i find well the quote that really stood out for me in the piece was our pursuit to stabilize nourishes the state fabricated society with our labor we become socialized to launder simply by living our lives surviving the day-to-day mundanity or mundanity of capitalism you want to just unpack that a bit for our listeners yeah that, that speaks to what I was saying about the co-optation part is we often talk about, particularly in the States, right? Like we'll talk about COINTELPRO or yeah. there was that piece that just came out about in the uh, Guardian in the UK about the programs they set up against yep. Kwame Saray. Or we'll talk about these like spy programs, essentially. And I think these things are very much real and have real impact. But I don't think that kind of counterinsurgency always explains why things don't go the way we want them to go. I think mm-hmm. that we get hyper-focused on that. And that's a part of a bl- much larger process where often it doesn't require that. That's really, that is, gets rolled out more so, in my opinion, when the day-to-day things don't work. <laughs> that's when you need COINTELPRO or so on and so forth. Now, obviously, COINTELPRO starts to, or any kind of like counterinsurgency program starts to impact the day-to-day ways that we function. But if you're just going to school, period, <laughs> if you're just watching most of the media under that the state produces, if you just have to work and you just have to take care of yourself and try to have a family, that's that all. there's propaganda in all of that that is always pushing you off the trail to do anything about that's revolutionary or anything Mm -hmm. towards liberation. Like those things are happening all the time. That's the soft power that I discuss in the, in the, in the piece and the state sets it up that way. And it's not even like some Illuminati conspiracy where people have to sit in a room. It's just when you're trying to protect your interests, you're going to build things that, that also put other people in motion to protect their interests. And that's what the state does. It protects the interest for capital. Right? So I think it's easy to be like, man, they co-opted this and this. But the question is like, one, I, well, I there was something that happened earlier this summer, and it was Juneteenth, and they and McDonald's, not McDonald's, but Walmart, well, probably McDonald's too, but Walmart was selling some kind of um, Juneteenth plates, and people got mad, and they're like, they're commodifying blackness. I'm like, bro, what do you think all of this is? Like, the fact that Walmart exists, is commodified commodification of blackness because they 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 don't they already own the means of production. So anything that you do, they can commodify because they own the things that create the wealth. And and you are a commodity yourself as a laborer. So blackness has been commodified long before they did Juneteenth. So I think we often complain about the process late like too late. Like it's yeah. already set up that way. So when we see these like egregious or maybe more excessive forms of it that's when we kind of like flail and we get mad and i understand it but that's happening all the time that's why i said in the piece like there's often this claim that um people are profiting off of black death like when someone gets shot by the police or something like that and that's and that's partially true but my point was black people get killed with impunity every day and most days there's not a donation there's not a thought there's not any activity that happens is just a back it's a back as a it's, it's somewhere in the back of the paper or headline that somebody got killed yeah. and that's it we won't talk about it don't even make the news so black death isn't the thing that's driving this like extra money that gets thrown in it's when 
it's when niggas actually respond. It's the actual rage yeah. and it's the labor that that comes from that rage. It's people actually doing things. It's not just the feeling that that sets that in motion. Like that that I just so I was, what I was trying to think about was trying to get deeper behind it. I'm like, how do we how do we always end up here? How do we go from like I talked about on the last time I was here with you? Like how do we go from George Floyd getting killed to buy black? Like Yes. That doesn't happen just because somebody threw money in this situation. We must have our own internal contradictions that are already incubated by the state that once you throw the money into it, it's just easy to exploit those contradictions. It's not that those things come out of nowhere. So black rage doesn't inherently have any like revolutionary direction. It can go there, but it can also be funneled elsewhere. And we see that happen all the time. So I was just trying to wrestle with that. Because I think there's a purity sometimes that we put on like radical energy and revolutionary. And it's like, yeah, yeah. But just yesterday you was doing all this shit. So you're probably just as contaminated as everybody else. So just exactly. so the moment someone gets killed by the police, you don't automatically just shred all that off. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean it can't be revolutionary, but you don't inherently just be like, okay, I'm mad. Now all the contradictions of capitalism are resolved let's go do something like that's not how that works i think sometimes we as in you know people will say the activists the left whatever i think sometimes we oversimplify that and i was trying to complicate that a little bit more no absolutely whilst reading this i began to recall the works of like silvia federici in which she tries into it she stretches marx to say okay what did Marx perhaps miss mm -hmm. in the reproduction of capital when it comes to the invisibilization of women's labor? Mm -hmm. And I kind of read it in that vein, that black rage thus becomes this, you're kind to explicate, okay, what function does black rage serve in the reproduction of the state and, and also right. uh, the reproduction of the, of, of, the, of the state and capital in and of itself? So in doing so, you, I guess people, I'm going to attach the article in the description of the episode but if you wouldn't mind perhaps just maybe walking us through you you mentioned three processes by which this takes place you want me to just walk through the piece in general yeah well so i'll just deal do the let's just deal with the title and then we can walk through the stages um yes. so there's so the laundering part people i hear even when i speak to them refer to this as a metaphor i honestly at this point don't think it's a metaphor i just want to say this up mm -hmm. front but 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 I don't care if people agree with me, whether it's a metaphor, it's truly descriptive. As long as you see the process, I'm not, that's not a debate I care about yeah. so much. But so laundering, just to explain what laundering is with the, within the traditional understanding of it is you take, and it's explained in the piece, but you take, yeah. if, if you and I went out and we sold drugs or we um, stole from <laughs> We stole, we stole from people's homes and we took items, yeah. whatever. We did something that's considered illegal, you know, quote unquote. And we had, and we make money off of that. And then we want to inject that money or put that money into quote unquote legitimate economy. There is a process we have to go through to, to clean that money or quote unquote legitimize it. So there's, there's three phases known as placement, layering and integration. This is yes. the way it's defined amongst like finance experts on it. So placement is we have to figure out how to just first put the money into the formal economy. And we'll usually do that through some kind of front. That's where like even the whole idea of washing money or laundering comes from like laundry yeah. mats. And people used to use laundry mats to clean their money. Right. So it's like because yeah. it was just an easy front. 
So we'll start some business. We'll start something. Let's say we start a strip club. Let's say we start a restaurant. We'll start something that's a heavy cash business or something. And then we'll start laundering our money through that. Nowadays, you can do it through crypto or whatever. Like, we, so we start. So in the second phase, it's we, the NFTs. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, in this, so that's the placement phase. And then there's layering where you take the money that you make, like a bunch of transactions, whatever you make through to your quote unquote legitimate business. And you layer it on top of the quote unquote dirty money that you made from drug dealing or thieving or whatever. And you tie that money together and then you spread it elsewhere so you can create like a, a large gap between the source of the funds and, yeah. and where the funds go. So it, it just obscures where the money came from. And then when that money comes back, once the profits come back, once once it kicks back to you, now that money has been cleaned and it's integrated into the system. And that's the integration stage. And then you just do it again. And you might do it so many times that you don't even have to keep drug dealing because you've made so much money from the restaurant and the strip club. That's laundering in the way it's been explained. But yes. as I was writing this, I didn't initially have that conception. I was more so focused actually on the black elite. That was like my initial kind of inspiration or just trying to understand how stuff that happens to the poor all transfers to them. But as I was writing it, I was like, well, honestly, if me as in a conqueror, as in colonizer, as in the U.S. or even older, any any of these European countries that went out and conquered the world, like, well, why would what makes any of these things legit? Like they stole, they enslaved, they took land, they took resources, and then they set up institutions on top of whatever they stole. And they and then they took the money from that. And they created colonies, they created countries, they, you know, they created a front, they created entire states on top of their conquest. So yes. what's the difference? <laughs> so I don't, I don't see it because if any definition you look at, they say a legitimate financial system. And I'm like, what makes any of this legitimate other than the fact that you conquered, like no one can make that make sense. Like we didn't vote to have the United States of America. You know, we didn't vote for the colony. None of the people who've been colonized voted for the colony. They didn't say, hey, come take our shit. Didn't nobody say that. So what makes it legitimate other than the fact that you conquered it through economic and military, you know, rule? Like, that's what you did, right? So I don't see the difference. So when we just look at the state, the state, and, and we I'm taken from, like, Gramsci and um, Stuart yeah. Hall. So this is grounded in other theorists. They make a very similar argument that the state, you know, Stuart All talks about in Police in the Crisis, the state is the organizer. And then Gramsci talks about the state is the educator. And both of these things work in tandem where they uphold the interests of capital and the state also mediates between be contradiction. between the classes. Yeah. And I'm also taking, I definitely want to shout out, because this is the actual definition I use, is uh, Rasul Mawad's book, Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence. And he does a good job of not just showing you the state just kind of as an idea or a concept, but he shows you how the state really like shows itself in cities. That's where you really can see the fronts that I'm even talking about. That's really where you can see how the state says you should, you need to, or the state in the city shows where people need to live. You live on this side of town. We're going to invest capital over here. We're going to put business here. We're going to put the poor there. Like you really can see this in the city. You see the divisions of labor. You see that more than you'll see it in the countryside or anywhere. So like, the cities in many ways become the actual fronts 
that push capital and that help manage it. And that is one of the best realizations of the state is the imperial city and the colonial city. You think about mm-hmm. early colonialism, like maybe when we're talking about when the British went to India, they would, that's how they started building cities to set up something so they could launder the stuff they were stealing from India. You know, like that's what they were, that's what the, there was the East Indian company and all these, that's what these people were doing. So a lot of these colonial cities got built just so they could have somewhere to warehouse the resources they were stealing, usually on some coastal town, so they could send it back to the to to the mother country. Right. So that formation is already in place. But then as as that is happening, like you already noted, inevitably, if you conquer someone, there's going to be resistance. And And I'm saying that resistance is black rage. It's not the only resistance, but. Since yeah. we're talking about black African people, black rage is a natural resistance to that. It's a natural response. It is an inescapable response that if you are plundering and doing all that, they're gonna people are gonna get mad. So it's like yes. that becomes a dialectic. I think I said whereas um wealth is being accumulated, so is suffering and death. Black rage emerges from that contradiction. Because <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just you're watching this major it's not even a gap, this gaping hole. So then the job becomes, okay, these people are getting angry like the state does with anything else. How do we legitimate? How do we keep continuing to legitimate ourselves? Because the front needs to keep going. We need people to believe in this country or we need people to keep working so we can keep the ongoing laundering and plundering going. So when people get mad, you've already set up all these fronts and you keep doing it over time and it proves itself. I think I said the illegitimate crimes of the past fund the legitimate crimes of the present. So yes. you've made all this money, you know, early off of just the more primitive accumulation. You become more sophisticated in your propaganda. And it's so now you're teaching people like, you know, in, in certain depending on what phase we jump into here, as far as like I'm talking about historical phase, you're giving people a certain narrative about what America was built on. That starts to fade away and now we're in an era where People can actually have a certain critical opinion of American history, but now you use that as another way to reinscribe how black people are the real patriots. It just keeps happening. (laughs) So it's like, so there's all these contradictions that, okay, I'm mad. I finally learned that black history wasn't told. And they're like, okay, here's diversity. Like it it just, it just keeps happening because they need these people as a customer base. They need these people to stay in place. So the soul capitalism can continue moving on. It's not, a conspiracy where people even have to talk to each other. It's a simple idea of how do I protect my interests? So there's one side where you kind of like try to do the, what people I guess call the co-opting. And then there's the other side when that doesn't work, then the things that we were talking about with the fascist responses, like a co-intel was those things come in and you just get the simple carrot and stick that we always deal with, where there's going to be a strong arm and a, and a more, and a more like liberal arm that pats you on the back. And either one, will kick corral you to make sure you stay under the guise of the state. And I think what you were speaking to just now speaks to the last line in the in the piece, anything less is a reconstruction of fronts. Exactly. It will continue to be that way if you again the state needs to legitimize legitimize itself and it will constantly reform, reshape. And for me that just speaks to the kind of pervasiveness of capitalism, if I'm honest. And I wouldn't say it's insurmountable, but it seems insurmountable because it's so adaptable. Yeah, it's I think I said black rage at its core is a response to conquest. Mm-hmm. Laundering throws throws black rage off the scent and it and it creates all these other red herrings. And red herring we understand within if you study like argumentative 
stuff like ar- red yes. herring is to throw people off the trail because that's what the point of an actual the actual red herrings are used to throw people off the trail so they don't follow the the direction of the actual target. So that's why I say it throws it off its scent. It was like that that is a metaphor, but also yes. true in a sense that like all the other contradictions, whether we're talking about discrimination, poverty, lack of self worth, all the things that people often talk about go back to the fact that you've been conquered. Yes. Like that's the primary contradiction. You don't have the will of self determination to to address these things so you're always in a grievance politics stage because you don't have any power right so mm-hmm. capitalism will feel inevitable if you're always trying to resolve the things that are not the primary contradiction if you've Absolutely. been conquered then you need to figure out how to end the conquering that's the that's the point Absolutely, absolutely you know yeah i guess in moving on or, or in continuing with the piece you speak to again that like what I found really quite uh, genius. Actually, we go into even a class dynamic of black rage. Mm-hmm. So it kind of says to us that all black rage isn't even the same, Mm-mm. or the way in which the state will utilize and operationalize black rage will depending on the class component from which it emerges. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I mean, you you go into the piece that okay, when it comes black rage that emerged from the the, the black elite, the elite class. That's that's a bit more deferential to power, isn't it? Do you want to speak about that? Yeah, damn, they want to read the quote on that one because I don't think I can say it better than I said it. In <laughs> but but uh, let me pull that up real quick. But um, <laughs> but um, I know where that is. That's in the labor section. Yeah, there's a lot I could say here. I won't read it all, but <laughs> but um, uh, let's see. Okay. Yeah, although black rage universally burns throughout the diaspora, the motivations and actions that arise from the from debris from the debris when an uprising occurs tends to be shaped by class interests. The black masses, unemployed, the proletarian poor, and working class receiving minimal to no bribes while experiencing the constant exhaustion of instability are most likely to unleash their rage against the state, like prisoners at their wits end, taking hostages and occupying the prison. The black elite, petty capitalists, upper-level professionals, and middle-class aspirants, the most bribed and stabilized by the state, are most likely to repress their rage and or sell it for more enhanced bribes and stability like jailhouse snitches copping to a plea. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, I have to credit Bell Hooks, and I know, <laughs> I know people in our field have, or in our world have, you know, varying opinions about bell hooks, but I had never read anyone who had actually made a class distinction on black rage up until I read her. I have to give her credit for that. I don't care about all the other contradictions. So I think she does get that right when she talks about the narcissistic rage of, of the black elite versus the militant rage of the masses. So the militant rage, she defines the rage of the downtrodden and the oppressed that could be mobilized to mount militant resistance to white supremacy because they want extra, they want things to actually change. And then she juxtaposes it with the narcissistic rage of black elite. And she says that are not interested in fundamentally challenging and changing white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. They simply want access to privilege within the existing structure. So it's, you can see this play out in real life. Like we were talking about where we don't want to get killed by the police. Y'all want to buy black. Right, like it's. Well, a, <laughs> it's I guess a, the question here for me that's just come up now. Then, what is the function of like black rage in the reproduction of that class? Well, I think it's possible, and I talked about this earlier in the in the essay, or earlier in the in that earlier, um, and I think in the prior stage, where 
Black Rage, like I was saying, the fronts are set up, so they are disciplining Black Rage to where yes. your frustrations are not really with the point of conquest. It's about how you're not getting access to stuff. They don't give us enough Black people. They don't let us in. So that's why I say it doesn't have an inherently revolutionary nature. It can be pushed in other ways. So you're like, well, we don't have Black wealth you know, in a settler colony. So we need more black wealth, right? Like you can be legitimately angry about that because yeah. you've been disciplined in a certain way where your interests align more with that. At least your, I say your immediate interests. I don't think your long-term interests do, but your immediate interests do serve more like, oh man, we need to get more of this. People who have no access to that is not are not really interested in it. But for the people who often are already given a certain, they're already, they've already been bribed anyway. Like, it's not just when an uprising occurs, you're already bribed by having the better job because all of this is bribery. Like you're all taking, <laughs> we're all being bribed. Because if it's a front, then everybody's just being paid a bribe. Like that's the way that works, right? So you've already been bribed. So when an uprising occurs, your interests are already set up in a way that are opposed to the masses of your people, right? Yes. But you still can be angry. You still may legitimately hate that they killed a black person. You still may legitimately hate that we're treated that way. I'm not saying all of these people are, I guess, bad people. It's just that your interests are aligned with, oh, they're trying to start black business. Let's do that. Oh, they're trying to give us a black president. Let's do that. Because that's more closely aligned to your interests because you're not dealing with the type of occupation of the police in your neighborhood that maybe some of these other people are. You're not, you're not facing that down. So you can both, so both can be mad, but the layering process, like I talked about earlier, is that you can layer both of these types of rage, the narcissistic rage and the black rage, and they and they set as the same thing. And I use Bordeaux. Yes. I, I don't want to get too deep in all of this, but I use Bordeaux to talk about like the social capital that basically the masses produce the social capital. The masses go out and create the pressure, the social capital that forces the state to respond. But the black mm -hmm. elite are positioned to inherit that social capital because he talks about how if the group is weak and not weak, like morally weak, but politically weak, then the the representatives or he says the nobility of that group inherits or can even embezzle the social capital. <laughs> so yeah. that's what the how many times have we doing. seen that, bro? How many times have we seen that? I'm not even going to start naming and shaming some organizations, but I think me and you both know who I'm talking about when it is the, the deaths of black individuals. Um, at the hands of the state mm -hmm. that then is recaptured by organizations who don't go out and do a damn thing other than cheer, cheer, toasting on the anniversary of people's deaths. <laughs> well, I'll talk about them because I already wrote about them anyway. I know. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I tried to show in 2020, since there was so many different roads I could have fallen down because there's so many directions to yeah. go. And that was the hardest thing was trying to stay, keep it tight. Because there's like so many examples of this. So I used 2020 after George Floyd's murder as kind of this case study, like a small case study to just see the process. So we see how I focus on three different entities in the U.S. I focused on um, political parties, obviously the two dominant political parties, corporate money that came from this, and then the foundation money. Now, obviously, all those three intersected because I feel like there's other cases of injections of cash but like those are the top three that i think influence yes. the majority of what goes on even if we can find other other examples so the democratic party after george floyd was killed in the month of june just online raised 115 million dollars in four days 
Damn. And raised $392 million in the month of June. The Republican Party raised $131 million in the in the month of June. And both both parties, even though the Democrats got more money, both parties broke fundraising records for that year in that month, right after George Floyd. Because this is already in place. Again, the fronts are already in place. So when niggas get mad, this is already here. It's not like they have to start it, right? And then you look at the racial equity funds went up from like $5 billion a year in racial equity and, and foundations in the nonprofit world to like $16 billion, like in 2020. And then corporations, the top, I think the top 50 corporations promised $50 billion in to fight so-called racial inequality. But then you follow the money, like just the publicly available stuff. I didn't even have to go into the archives for these things. And... Let's deal with the corporations. You forty-five of the fifty billion that they promised, they they could serve the profit from because most of it is either some kind of investment or some kind of loan, right? Mm-hmm. It was either like an investment in like a black hedge fund or something like that, or in a black bank, or loans to give out to homeowner black homeowners. Very like bourgeois things, right? Yes. So only seventy million of that was going to fight so-called criminal justice like only 70 million was even given towards that and that even that was probably given to cornflake bullshit or whatever but like yeah that was there was that and then you look at the um foundation money and i think we can see the examples of all these people that are newly found abolitionists because they got bought into it literally bought into it but like (laughs) but but in the foundation money you i mean we can look at black lives matter um, foundation network or global foundation network or whatever and we see that, you know, they got the 90, 90 million and they got the 70 million, I believe, the following year. And none of that money went to any of the chapters, you know, or almost none of it. And none of that money initially went to any of the families and they just sat on it. And they're currently, as of now, still involved in a lawsuit. And like I, I think I said in the article, like a Spider-Man meme conflict pointing back at each other about who stole money from what. But and then you look at the Republican Party, they use they use black rage to fund pass more anti-protest laws that's why i was saying the carrot and the stick is both sides so you know these anti-protest laws you can run over protesters crt attacks all of this shit right like and then you look at the democratic party they're going to give more money to the police they didn't pass anything on criminal justice reform and if reform isn't even enough but they didn't even do that but even when you step back from all of that now they're saying now they're saying fund the police yeah biden's out here pushing for a new, basically a new crime bill so it's yeah. like but even when you step back from all that, my argument isn't that, oh, they failed to deliver. It's the fact that they got all that money in the first place. That's the problem. It's not mm. simply that, oh, BLM. It's like, why is all the chapters doing the labor and you get that much money in your coffers at all? Like, that shouldn't even happen. We need a different mm-hmm. process. That Even if y'all were just and were fair, shouldn't happen. Why does the NAACP, who's been completely irrelevant for how long, get more money actually them and the urban league they got more money than blm it's very rarely said but Mm -hmm. they actually got more money than blm why do people who weren't even actively doing anything get most of the money like they i mean you know they like to talk about when they talk about immigration that's to say people are quote unquote skipping the line but this is the greatest example of skipping the line (laughs) so it's like like so so they so we again we can see the actual labor because it's the labor of black rage. It's people doing things, people protesting, it's people burning shit down. Whatever version of protest you care to, you you subscribe to, it doesn't really matter. 
It's that actual labor. It's a very unrecognized, unpaid labor that brings all this money out. And they basically pay these folks to to do things that steer it in a different direction. And because even the masses of people have been unfortunately imbued with some of these ideas that their interests are tied to the black elite, that their interests are tied to just any black person, you know, it's mm-hmm. easy to follow them to the, the, the Disney mermaid movie or whatever, because that, that's what it is. Too black, I take you, you're not going to be taking the 500K. Or what is it? They're inventing words like these days to call us what? Capitalists. Yeah, slurs, man. And then people will come out, but you'll see everyday people come out and defend that shit. That's what what, what I'm saying. Like, because we've been convinced that the stuff they're doing is the militant rage. Like, that's the layering. That's the laundering of it, right? Like, we've been convinced that what that Jay-Z getting in the door here or them making this movie here. And what it does is it just funnels that rage elsewhere. Even if we don't agree with it, even if it's like you and me, we're critical of it. Yeah. We got to talk about it. Exactly. We're not doing it. Talk about it and respond. So what? We have, to, we have to talk about it and respond. Yeah. Like we got to spend time on that. So it funnels it. It just funnels it in a material process. It doesn't have to be a thing where we all like it. Like I think I yeah. quote Dr. James. It's like when you, she says, you know, when you try to stabilize your family, you stabilize this predatory structure. Like, it's just the nature yeah. of it, right? So it's like, that's what I mean, back to your question about the day-to-day struggles. Like, just through the process of living, things are often or automatically compromised anyway. So it's not yeah. just when the cops come to your door or just when they put out the program to confuse people. Things are already doing that all like a COINTEL Pro program is, I don't say all of it, but like a, a large part of these programs is just a ramping up of what's already in motion. Exactly. You know, if you watch any of the bullshit that's out here, you're going to be confused more than likely anyway. If that programming doesn't work, we also have guns, you know, <laughs> like it's just. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think where was I reading it? It must have been in one of the first books that I owe to my radicalization. Is it Black Awakening Capitalist America? Yeah. That was the first book I read for this, just to reread it again to give me a good analysis. But go ahead. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's quite pertinent and and appropriate here. And he speaks about the reasons why the state gave concessions. Mm -hmm. And he speaks about, again, it's not the fact that, you know, the state has, has become an altruistic force for good, but rather... It is okay. How can we the, the final the final kind of frontier or the final step of the stage is as you said is the co-intern pro is assassinations, but they don't want to go there no. necessarily. They have other ways of getting of getting it's ex- of subduing the masses. It's expensive and it disrupts it disrupts capital. It disrupts exactly the, of the laundering and it's right like that's those things are expensive. They that's why they move from even when we're I was just talking on my own podcast is yesterday like moving from slavery to wage labor it yeah. was it was a it was a risk assessment if you use capitalist uh, language it was a risk assessment as well yeah. like, it's in some ways it was cheaper to pay out a wage in some cases than it was to take care of slaves cuz yeah. you have to consistently give them things to keep them going and they become exactly. highly expensive and it also to use again a capitalist ling- lingo like it's it's uh, stammers against any kind of in- innovation or anything like that right you can't build competition amongst laborers if you everybody's just a free slave. You can't expand out west, exactly. blah, 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 blah. 
But then you're also dealing with actual slave revolts. <laughs> like you're dealing with you're dealing with black rage in a very literal sense. Like you're dealing with people who can kill you at any time. And then yeah. so this also brings about a certain fear. So uh, we need to corral labor. And like that's all this always comes back to corralling labor. Like it's not just, oh, we gotta stop these angry people just because they're angry. Like this is disruptive to the actual process. So so that's why laundering makes sense because we have to legitimize what we're doing and we have to constantly do things to legitimize this capitalist nature of the of this capitalist system. Like we have to constantly use the state to legitimize the idea of capital. Even Absolutely. if in some cases in this very advanced stage, we have to use the very criticism of the thing as a way to legitimize it as well. <laughs> but like mm-hmm. we have to legitimize it, right? So the black elite become very essential and helping legitimize it, you know, because there's still this this myth of black folks being this like proletarian class. And I just don't agree with that. Not in the United States, maybe elsewhere, but I just don't agree with that at this at this point in time. I think we have that potential, but I don't at this at this point, I think we're more and more to use a, the bell hooks distinction. I think more and more than even the masses are getting subsumed by this more narcissistic rage. I think that's part of the propaganda. I think so we can look at the the class distinctions in like in various countries, but really, I think we can make a broader global consideration of maybe there's a some more narcissistic rage amongst black folks in the first world, quote unquote, or in the global north yeah. than black folks in, in, in the global south. I think I don't I wouldn't go that far just yet definitively because I haven't studied that point. So I'm just making an observation. But I would argue that that's where we're headed. And maybe in some ways I've always had that because you look at what people have done in other countries and you look here. Now we're in a different situation. Material situation is different. But particularly nowadays, more and more because of the process of celebrity culture and the way that Mm -hmm. that's just so obsessed in our everyday life, I think more and more it's harder to even get the rank and file person to think about things beyond like the interests of the black elite. And even you think. Go ahead. No, no, you saying that is exactly how I read your piece. And I read your piece, I situated this piece in a a wider project of how do we first and foremost raise class consciousness and how after that do we heighten the contradictions? Mm -hmm. I don't don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if that's making sense. That's how I read your piece as well. You can keep speaking on that. I want to hear more on that one. Go ahead. No, so what what I was thinking about, the reason why I'm thinking is in my mind right now, recently I met with one of my mentors and one of the things he kept saying to me is, you know, keep writing, keep getting going out there. But more specifically, how you have to think of identifying contradictions and how you can heighten them and focus on, mm-hmm. on a class struggle. And when I'm reading Black Rage and you're saying right now, okay, people have come to believe that black people are proletarian class in the US and say, no, maybe not. Maybe more and more, even the, 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 the quote unquote person, the working class person, the person working in menial, menial jobs as many black people do, are finding increasingly themselves identified with the black elite mm-hmm. they're finding that 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 rage that is uh, expressed by jay-z at the super bowl mm-hmm. or kendrick lamar in wembley mm-hmm. or glastonbury is is a way in which we you know mobilize ourselves and, and i just find it very very strange personally yeah i, I think again I, I can't go as far as definitively saying because it's something to study because it's not i can't just go mm-hmm. off of like social media because i don't know course, yeah. i don't know where the average person's mind is but I think we can we can say with a fair amount of of belief <laughs> that that's where it's headed because Just look at shade room man 
Say what? <laughs> the shade room. Yeah. Because <laughs> because the thing about like this this version of Black Elite, and this is something else that I think is underrated as far as Robert Allen's book, is that he also talks about the overthrow of the prior black bourgeoisie and the new black bourgeoisie. Like, I don't think enough people when they talk about it deal with that segment of it, right? So he talks mm-hmm. about how, how the black power advocates didn't actually expect that to inspire the actual bourgeoisie class as well, or the petty bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. that we, the black folks, right? They didn't expect that to catch on with them. They thought that would be something that goes directly to the the masses, but they also didn't want to continue to do the kind of respectability stuff, right? Like they yeah. wanted to be where they're daishikis and that's, you know, the cultural nationalists, you can look back and yeah. see a lot of the criticisms of cultural nationalism, what we're talking about today. I don't think it was as bad as it is today. You yeah. can see how like H. Rod Brown talks about this as well. Like, you know, how they wanted to, he's like, what you going to do? Beat the man off with your daishiki? Like, you know, it's like just simply being proud and black is, is insufficient. That's what he's talking about. But coming back to Allen, he talks about how those people displaced the preacher and the HBCU teacher. Yes, and stuff. They displaced that. And those are the folks who were moving more into corporate America within the integrated world. But they wanted to make sure that they could still stay black and they could still be down with the cause. Like they, they had that contradiction. And really, the prior bourgeoisie didn't have because they were never invited to those places. So they weren't, really, they weren't obsessed with this sense of keeping it real or whatever. Right. So I think you see that even more today. When a lot of the black elite are folks who who, you know, like to celebrate being ratchet and from the hood. And and we've seen yeah. this shedding of the more respectability model, like really coming out of Ferguson and people pushing back against that. And there's more. And some of that's been a positive. It's been this kind of own boot, black bourgeois revolution. Like there's more acceptance of of queer bodies and there's more acceptance yeah. of different styles. Like all that stuff has has taken way off compared when I was a kid. We were all wearing baggy jeans and shit, right? It's just not yeah. the same, like culturally, or at least the cultural products are much different. So you have, it's easier to identify because these people are not trying to alienate themselves so much from the masses, at least in a cultural sense, as maybe folks who were wearing suits all the time. Like they don't try to mm-hmm. do it. They actually understand they need to appeal and seem like they're relatable. That's how you brand yourself. So I think yeah. that that has a different, that's, there's a different transmission that occurs there compared to when someone like use like a Dr. King who felt like they had to wear their their suits and they had yeah. to turn the other cheek and they like they knew they were trying to appeal to a certain white liberal sentiment so they behaved in such a way they weren't trying to appeal to the downtrodden masses. Yeah. But today these people will use the aesthetics of the Absolutely. downtrodden though to the point where you don't even know where people are from anymore. Used to be if people dress a certain way, for better or worse, I knew where you was from. Now you got folks, they could be from the suburbs, and they still dress like what used to be understood as the hood because it's just more appropriate to take that culture. So when we're talking about, like, cultural appropriation or whatever that shit is, like, again, we're just talking about capitalism, so I really wish people would just, you know. Honestly, man. Yeah. That conversation. <laughs> that conversation is so hackneyed. Yeah. It's a hackneyed down argument. I'm just like, really, you lot are still talking about cultural appropriation when none of you are profiting from it. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's just odd. But our culture is used even amongst the black elite. But we think that because they might have came from our neighborhoods, or they at least look like they did, or they at least speak to it, um, that they somehow are down for us. And I cited a piece. I cited a piece in the in the in the essay 
essentially talking about how what was that piece called, man? But the brother pretty much broke down how most black people that work in Hollywood and stuff have like top level degrees from top colleges and are not from any type of poor backgrounds, but they're the ones that tell the stories about poor black people. Right. Mm. Like, so this is very well documented as far as like, this is just already in place. He just, he has the data to explain it. I think I, it, it's, it's in the one where I said, um, the anger and suffering of the black poor is liquidated to front rich black entertainers ambitions, you know? Mm. And so it's like, I think the piece was called here it is who actually gets to create black pop culture and when you looked at the economics most of these people from from middle to upper class groups like that's the people that get to tell the story so there's been a say that again and wouldn't you say far more pernicious in engendering class solidarity then say that one more time couldn't hear you wouldn't you say it's far more pernicious then in, in, in trying to engender a sense of class solidarity now within now you've got the black elite who all for all intents and purposes, aesthetically or ostensibly look like they're down with the masses, but really they're not. I think it's far more pernicious in engendering class solidarity now because for all intents and purposes, ostensibly, the black elite look like, it's, I can't remember the woman's name, but she was speaking about people are, you're anti-racist, but you're not anti-capitalist and you're not anti-imperialist because as she's saying in the colony, it became, it became very clear to know who your oppressors were. It became very clear to notice, okay, this is person not on my side, they're not on my side, in many places when, when the white man came. But with the establishment of the black elite in the colony, you can no longer tell who our enemies yeah. are. I mean, you have to build solidarity with. You can see this, I mean, you, uh, you come out of the UK, you can see this in, yeah. on one side, the celebration, the adulation of the death of the queen. Oh. And then you can see the celebration, adulation of Meghan Markle from the same people. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, and and that that's a major contradiction, but that's what I mean. Like now she's not even really trying to pull the aesthetic. She literally is just like a light skinned black girl who don't even who just said she didn't even know she was black most of her life, right? But like Exactly. But there's this odd contradiction where you can send one of us in and you can confuse us if you send somebody in that looks like us but if you yep. send in a white person even if they're saying something that's not completely awful it don't work like you saw this in you saw this in the bernie campaign in here in america and again i'm not yep. endorsing anyone i'm just saying look at the, what what went down they always say bernie it was bad on race or it did i don't think it ultimately mattered what mattered was the fact that the black middle class and the black petty bourgeoisie was 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 to use femi taiwo's term completely uh, the elite capture of them um, was completely yeah. done. So the black churches, the black politicians, all the people to actually get black people to the polls were already down for the, the centrist. Right. Of the, yep. Yeah, they were already down for that. So it didn't matter. There was no way Bernie was going to do that because he didn't have the money to bribe these people. Like he yeah. didn't have, you know, so it, so it doesn't matter if Bernie, if you think Bernie is a social, I don't, again, it's not about Bernie. It's just look at the situation. Even someone saying, like, let's just do a little bit more progressive things economically, they wasn't going to hear him. So it wasn't about whether Bernie was bad on economics or bad, bad on race. It doesn't. Bernie, I think this second time around, tried to speak more to that. It doesn't work because that group of people are gatekeepers. As I say in the piece, when we think about this in the labor sense, they're scabs. Like, they will always sell out the rank and file labor class. Because they get something out of it. Their churches are going to get funded. The politicians will get some some kickback somewhere. Like all of them are taken care of. Like they'll all get the bribe. We're not going to get it, but we're taught that they know what's best for us. You know, like yep. 
that's just the nature of how this works. So I don't, I think that one of the biggest struggles today is against that class because black people sit in an interesting position where even when you deal with the le- with when you, especially on the left, there's this, I think again, this kind of over homogenizing of this like revolutionary because we had the Panthers or because we had something. And I'm like, if you actually go out and organize, you're not just talking to whatever black leftists on Twitter, you actually go out and try to organize. You're going to have to deal with churches. You're going to deal with the very people we're talking about. You're going to have to deal with the cultural nationalist types who have turned self-care into revolution for themselves. You're going to have to deal with the, you. These are the people you're going to have to deal with. You're not going to be dealing with the Panther party. When you go to the hood, you're going to be dealing with a lot of petty bourgeoisie folks who work in these middle management jobs that look like quote that are black and they often help manage it. So when you learn all this radical history about black folks, it doesn't actually hold up when you go to the neighborhoods. It's not because black people are backwards. It's just how this has been set up. So I think that struggling against that class, like moving them out of the way and everybody being clear on who, what we're looking at can really help move a lot of things forward because if you can get if you can get them out of the way, then black people will win. Like if you move them out of the way, there's no other contradictions. Like we're clear on the queen, we're clear in the United States. Like it's only those people that keep funneling us back to these things. And on that note, man, oof, I think I'm gonna close out. Like I know we're gonna do a part two, but honestly, bro, that was yeah, I really enjoyed that conversation. A lot to think about. Please hit up two black in the comments. Is there anything you want to end with? No, nah, we'll get into. I mean, we talked about some of it. We'll get more directly into the phases because I know we kind of jumped around, but I appreciate your questions. Again, I'm trying to think this through more than I'm trying to promote myself as some, you know, genius. I really am trying to think this through because I think there's much more to write. There's much more to discuss um, and to highlight. So I would just say read it and and share your thoughts because I think there's something, read, I'm talking about to the audience and and share your thoughts because I think there's something to just think about this particularly in the stage that we're in and in the ways that all of this stuff is being promoted back to us in ways we've really never seen to this extent before. And we need new thoughts. We need new theories on this stuff to understand. We need to update the prior theories that we use to understand this shit so we can figure out a way to combat it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be the foremost thinker on that. I, but if I am trying to do anything, I'm trying to just engender more like, thinking around these subject matters, getting people to write more on these subject matters, because more and more we're being employed to um, to reinforce the state. And we think that we're doing something differently. And that's that's what laundering does. <laughs> so so anything we can do to push back against that, I think we really need to be thinking about that as as people who actually care about the state of the world. Absolutely. And on that note, please like, comment, subscribe. The Malcolm Effect on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Please hit up Two Black or share his article. I'm going to put the article, the link to the article in the description of this episode. I encourage people to read it, make comments. You can email me. I can pass it on to Two Black, post it on Twitter, share it with people, and let's get a conversation going because I think it's a very important conversation that needs to be had. Take care. Peace out. Peace.